I want to share with you this morning a blessing that God gives to dads out of uh, the psalm, Psalm 127. This is a pronouncement that he gives to fathers. He says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I love how he concludes it, how blessed, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That's a wonderful blessing from God that he pronounces upon fathers. And uh, this blessing for God especially applies, as you know, to those dads who know God as their father. And they also know that he is their heavenly father. So they know him and they know he is their heavenly father. I know God has greatly blessed me with three sons. It's been a joy to be their dad and to raise them up. And uh, I can echo those words that the Apostle John wrote, and I hope you can as well if you're a dad. <clears throat> he said, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And I want that to be your joy as well, Dad, that your children are walking in the truth as well. As a dad and now as a grandpa and as a pastor for many years, I've become aware more and more just how difficult it is to raise children in this society, in this culture today. And this Father's Day, I want to share with you a key. I want to share with you a key that God gives to you out of the scriptures for raising godly children. I call it Dad's Key for Getting His Kids to follow the Lord. Dad's key that God gives to you dads for getting your children to follow the Lord. Or as John put it, to walk in the truth. Uh, that key is found in the book of Ephesians, and that's where we're going to be uh, spending our time, the book of Ephesians. But before we get to the key itself, there's something your kids must discover about you, Dad, that's presented earlier in the book of Ephesians. Now, I know that what he presents here is for all of God's children, so it's not just dads, but we're focusing this morning uh, primarily on dads. And so I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is our first part of our outline, if you'd like to fill that out this morning. Dad, your kids must see that you, that you are following the Lord. Really, it all begins there, doesn't it, in the home? That your children can see that you, Dad, are following the Lord. And as a Christian dad, your kids need to see that you live differently. And Ephesians describes this difference, calling it a walk, the walk of a godly person. And we're going to go rather quickly through these scriptures, uh, but you'll get the idea, and you'll have it there in the outline. So the very first one is Ephesians 2.10 where he picks up that concept of your walk. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, that really in the Greek that's poem, poema, we are his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So it all begins there. You got saved and God says, you're my poem, you're my creation. I've created you that you should walk in these good works. So there's a difference in how you behave and how you live and how you walk. Go over to chapter 4, verse 1 for number 2. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, I entreat you to walk. There it is again. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, that verse points two directions. It points back to the first three chapters where he described this incredible salvation that God has effected for you. I mean, chose you and blessed you with every spiritual blessing and and has forgiven you and all that. He focuses on what he has done. He says, now, because of this incredibly costly, and yet a free gift to you, great salvation, walk differently. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And of course, in chapter 4 on through, he talks about what that walk is going to look like. Drop down to verses 17 and 18, and you'll see that word walk again in chapter 4. In verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk... No longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Isn't that something? Unsaved people walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. They don't understand God. They don't understand God's ways. They don't understand the future. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. He said what? He said, Dad's... You don't walk that way any longer. You used to walk that way. But now things have dramatically changed, and yours is a different walk now. Go to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Again, he talks about your walk in chapter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's good. You're going to be just like God, and your family is going to see that you're just like God. As beloved children, and walk in love. Walk in love. Boy, that's something that's dramatically needed in homes and in our world today. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so he says, your your life, your walk is going to be characterized by a walk of love, a sacrificial love. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. And drop down to verse 8 of that same chapter. For you were formerly darkness... Well, you're in the soot, you're in the dark, but he says, now you're light in the Lord, walk as children of light. You know, suddenly you're not no longer groping around, struggling to find the direction. No, it's, it's bright as a noonday sun now. And the idea of walking in light speaks about walking in truth and moral purity. You'll find that in the book of 1 John. So he says, look, you walk in truth, you walk in moral purity because you Walk in the light. And then one final one, that's chapter 5 again, verses 15 and 16. And there he says to you and me, Therefore be careful how you walk. So this is going to take a little bit of work here. A little bit of discernment. A little bit of caution. Not as unwise or foolish men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And he'll go on and he'll say to you, you need to be controlled. You need to be filled with God the Holy Spirit. 
And of course, you know the Word of God, and you couple those together in your life, and you walk wisely. You walk skillfully, would be how the Old Testament say it. You walk with a skill, investing your life for the glory of God. So, Dad, your kids must see that you are following the Lord. You no longer live as the world lives. You walk in God's light and not in the world's darkness. You live according to God's wisdom and not the world's foolishness. You walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh, because you are a child of God who possesses the Spirit of God, and therefore you live according to the Word of God. Well, this leads right into the next second major point that follows in Ephesians. It's interesting how it just moves and progresses right into it. And that, Dad, it has a huge, huge impact on your child, your children, your home life, and really upon the world. And that second major point is this. Dad, your kids must see that you love your wife. Follows right on suit there. To this whole thing about the walk. And he moves right next into dad's relationship with the children's mother, his wife. In fact, number one under your, in your outline, they must see, your children must see that your love is unconditional and sacrificial. He'd already talked about that earlier, didn't he? To love as Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. But now he brings it home in the home itself with the dad's relationship to his wife. And look at verse 25. Chapter 5 again. Verse 25. Husbands, this command, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How did he love it? And gave himself up for it. Sacrificial Love here. By the way, you notice how he began earlier, though, that you had to be controlled or filled by the Holy Spirit? Why? Because he knew that, Dad, you and I couldn't pull this off. We might think we can, and sometimes we might, but he knew there's going to be times when what? You're only going to be able to do this as God the Holy Spirit controls your life, and you're growing in his grace and knowledge of his word as well. And so he says, your love, your love must be an unconditional and sacrificial love. By the way, This certainly applies when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. I know there's never any time that dad, that husband, you need to forgive your wife, right? Yeah, well, anyway. Even earlier in chapter 4, he talks about that thing, uh, forgiving one another. What does he say over there in chapter 4, the last part? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so we find here that it has to be that kind of love, an unconditional, a sacrificial love, that says, regardless of what happens in that home, I am a forgiving husband. I'm a forgiving dad. But secondly, the kids must see that you love your wife. Secondly, how? They must see that your love promotes purity. Your love, dad, in the home, promotes purity. Purity. Look at verses 26 and 27. So that he might sanctify, that is, Christ might sanctify the church, which is also his bride, being set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
It's interesting how Paul picks up themes that he's talked about earlier in the book. Turn to chapter 1. And just right out of the gates, he says in verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice this, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Often we say, oh Lord, bless that person. He says, guess what? I already have. I've already said I already have blessed them. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. So there he picks that theme up again with his love for the church and says that's how dads, husbands are to love their wives, to promote purity. The Lord's love for His church was that and is a purifying love. When you think of the kind of love your children are subjected to and they see on the TV and in the theaters coming out of Hollywood, your display of love toward their mother that is pure has a powerful impact upon them. It is a spiritually uplifting, spiritually beneficial love on display. They see your love for their mother that encourages her toward what? Greater godliness. You're encouraging her, your wife, toward great, greater godliness. Their mother toward greater godliness. Such love causes your wife to become more holy and allows her inward beauty to shine out. And if you really love your children's mother with this kind of love, you will hate anything that would defile her. You would hate anything that would defile her. So, Dad, in your home, In your home, your children need to see that you love your wife, their mother, with an unconditional sacrificial love that guards and promotes her purity. And when you love your wife like that, you can only imagine what impact that will have on your children as they're growing up and later on as they're looking for the mate that they're going to go through life with. It is a powerful, powerful impact in the home. Obviously, you can see that. And it fits right in with the man's walk or the Christian's walk. And then he falls right out of that into the home life and dad's love for his wife there. So your love for your wife also is to be, may I add this, a lasting love. And here at this church, we preach and teach God's word on that matter. It is to be a lasting love. You are glued together with their mother for life. And your marriage is to be a wonderful and joyful marriage? No, no, it is not trouble-free, and you know that. But it should be a growing, loving, lasting bond, and your children, your children will find security and strength in your home because you have this kind of love for their mother. Very powerful point here. But now we continue, moving through the book of Ephesians, we come to the next major point. Dad, God places in your hands the key. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Dad, God places in your hands the key. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but... Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Boy, there's a lot in there. A lot in there. Even before we get to this key, though, we must consider the two great pressures parents face. 
They are staggering. They're powerful, formidable, if you please. They are great pressures. The two great pressures that every parent faces. Number one, number eight in your outline, the external pressure of culture. And boy, it is more powerful now than when I was a child. It's even more powerful now than when my children were growing up. There was a time when our children were protected, right? They were protected. They were taught and cared for according to what was appropriate to their age. They were not exposed prematurely to things they weren't mature enough to handle. They used to be unknowing and innocent when it came to certain issues of life. But boy, that's not the case anymore whatsoever. But that innocence has been lost in today's instant electronic environment. And the impact has been great upon our children. I think about the last 10 years and wow. Now all the kids have their own cell phones, their own laptops, and so forth, I mean, and, uh, and tablets, I mean, it's just, and it's just more and more and more. You wonder what's going to come next into their lives and into the home as well. And because of that, you know, they, they, they're impacted by this uh, technological age. Instead of our children spending time with their parents, they spend their time with their electronic devices. We've had some of our uh, nieces and nephews come to visit us, and guess what? They didn't come empty-handed. They've got their electronics, their games, you know. They could care less about aunt and uncle, you know, or grandpa and grandma. we got our own things that we're going to do, you know. And they just bury themselves in it. It's amazing. And what they're looking at and listening to captures their minds and their hearts, their lives. And now there's nothing they can't bring up on their electronic devices. I mean, absolutely nothing. You can't protect them anymore. You know that. And so there's this tremendous, powerful pressure of culture that they're dealing with. And because of all that external pressure of today's culture, we have more teen pregnancies along with alcohol and drug addiction among our children. And all that's gone up exponentially. And our homes have to compete with this external pressure. But there's also another pressure. Another powerful pressure that we have to face in the homes, and that is the internal pressure of your child's depravity. The internal pressure of your child. May I also add grandchild, grandchildren's depravity? Psalm 58 verses 3 and 4 say, The wicked are estranged from the womb. From the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Genesis 8.21 says, The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's built right in them. David wrote, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now David was, was declaring that from the time of his conception, he was what? A sinner. And that's what the Bible teaches. That from conception, that child has a sinful nature. Inherited from Adam. Proverb 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. In other words, foolishness is already a part of our children's nature. And you know that. You've raised children. You've had grandchildren around. You know that factually. That yes, foolishness is really indeed built up in their heart. One man wrote these graphic words. I mean, they're really graphic. Listen to what he wrote. He wrote, and I quote him, The world's smallest battlefield 
is the child's heart. And the conquering of it calls for all-out hand-to-hand combat. End of quote. That, that is a graphic quote. The world's smallest battlefield is the child's heart, and the conquering of it calls for all-out hand-to-hand combat. Though instruction and discipline are most helpful in teaching your child moral values and right behavior, listen, you want to get at the very heart of your child. And that brings us to number two in your outline. Number two, the necessary foundation undergirding this key. The necessary foundation. There's a foundation. It's necessary that undergirds this key that God gives to you dads. Yesterday, some of you attended a baby shower here. And you attended a senior's graduation party. You know, when you've been around as long as I have in this church, you know, some of those kids were not even born when I first came, when Mary and I first came. And they were born, and those little babies, you know, and then they grow up, and now they're graduating, you know. And so it's, it's exciting to see these little ones and, and the effect that dad, you, and mom have had in their lives as they've been faithful to the Lord, faithful to church, faithful to the Word, and to watch those kids loving the Lord and going out into life. I mean, that is exciting. That's what it's all about. So it can be done in this difficult culture, even with this challenge of a sinful heart as well. But the necessary foundation undergirding this key, number one, A, dad and mom must evangelize each one of their children. Dad and mom. It's great to have the church, but don't leave that to the church. Dad, mom, God leaves that in your hands. The church is here to help. But you're the ones that must evangelize each one of your children. Our key verse says you are to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This means first and foremost that you must evangelize your children. You must teach your child that he or she is a sinner. Yes, a sinner who is alienated from God. You must show them clearly the consequences of their being a sinner and doing wrong, which includes forfeiture of blessing, the difficulties of life, eventual death, and then eternal separation from God in hell. That's all to be taught by dad and mom to their children. And grandpas and grandmas, you teach that as well to your grandchildren. And sometimes it will be left to you because maybe their mom and dad aren't with the Lord and walking as they ought. They won't understand their need for salvation until they realize their sin separates them from God. Susanna Wesley, and you know about her, I think, because she was the mother of John Wesley, the great evangelist, and Charles Wesley, the great songwriter, Christian songwriter, plus she was the mother of 15 other kids. I think she might be qualified to have something to say then. Listen to this quote from her. She said, the parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the saving of the soul. The parent who indulges self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him to drown his child, soul, and body forever. End of quote. That also is a very powerful quote, is it? Not. 
So tell your child clearly about Jesus Christ. Clearly explain to your child what it means to trust Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, of receiving eternal life, of being born into His family. Teach them and teach and, and clearly explain to them about the assurance that they can know that they're forgiven and that they're going to go to heaven. But that brings me to number B, and B is so important in this uh, message this morning. B, your child's eternal destiny may not be settled by a prayer. Your child's eternal destiny may not be settled by a prayer. I realize I have to be very careful with this, but I want you to understand, I think you'll get the point here. Children are very impressionable. I've, I've been in uh, children's groups where we've had like Awana, and we've had Bible school and other things like they used to have a, a little sermons for the, the children before the, the main preaching service, you know. And you get about 25 children, you say, how many of you want to ask Jesus in your heart? And you know, their, their heads are about eyes. One raise that one kid. They go up all over the place. They're very impressionable. And dad and mom, you're going to need the discernment of God, the Holy Spirit, to help you here. Because you want to be sure that they have really settled on this issue. They understand. They understand that there's something between wrong between them and God. And it's a very serious thing. And they need to have Jesus in their heart. And yes, when it is sincerely a prayer of faith, and it only takes faith. It's not an issue of works at all. It is you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, they are instantly saved. But you want to keep an eye on them and you want to see how they progress along. Because as it says here in our text, it says, you, when teaching your child to invite Jesus into his heart, is far from what Paul has in mind when he commands fathers to raise their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He's clearly describing an ongoing, continual process of guidance and mentoring, not a single rote prayer recited like a magic formula. Now indeed... Children do invite Jesus Christ in their heart by a simple prayer. And that's wonderful. I did. I'm sure in my journey as well, I had many doubts. And I prayed that prayer many times over. That's all right. I didn't know the Bible like I do now. You should understand that. And so as I began to understand more of the Scripture, I began to relate what God had done and trusted Him more and more. I'm just simply saying, just write down that point. Your child's eternal destiny may not be settled by a prayer. And keep that in mind, if you would, please. Many a child has invited Jesus into his heart as a toddler, listen, only to fall away from Christ before faith could come to full fruition. And we see that over and over again in Christian families. And I said, it's going to take a spirit-filled discernment on your part. So let's look again now at our key verse, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Number three, your God-given key first unlocks, don't miss it, Dad, your God-given key first unlocks a do not. It unlocks a do not. How important is this? Don't fail in this first part. And listen, many a Christian dad has. 
They failed in the first part. Boy, they want to get that second part in there, but they failed in the first part. Do nots. Let me share with you ten ways, and there's a whole lot more than that, a dad can provoke his child to anger. How does a dad do that? Well, we'll go very quickly through these, and you can spend more time thinking about it on your own. Number one, being overprotective. Overprotective. You can exasperate your kids by unnecessarily restricting them and by not trusting them, by not allowing them to develop their independence. And there's a process there where children are to become more and more independent, but not ahead of the game, you know, not too soon, by keeping them under stern control all the time. And you probably are familiar with homes like that, where there's such a sternness there. And that exasperates the child. Number two. Oh, you'll know this. You'll know this. Let's go visit Isaac and Rebecca. That home. No problems there. Isaac, he loved Esau, the, you know, the firstborn there by a second or two. He loved him because he was a mighty hunter. He liked hunting and evidently Isaac was like, either he liked hunting or he liked venison, one of the two. And then there was Rebecca and she favored the stay-at-home son, Jacob. That didn't cause any problems in that home. They just grew up with the one wanting to kill the other. And Jacob had to flee. And guess what? Jacob took it all right into his home. Now this is really weird bizarre because you know which wife he favored? You know which wife I favor? Okay, never mind. She's sitting right down there. He favored Rachel. Didn't affect Leah a bit, did it? Let's go get some more mandrakes, whatever that is. That's weird, bizarre. Yeah. Can you imagine the tension in that home? I mean, having two wives would be something else anyway, but I mean, the tension in that home. And where did he get that? Well, his dad and mom were exactly like that. And so what happens? He has his own kids. He has 12 of them. No problem there. The others knew that he favored who? Joseph. Yeah, the youngest one. He favored Joseph. I guess Benjamin was the, was the youngest of all. And, and no problem there. They just wanted to what? Kill that son. You know, we're going to kill him because he's dad's favorite. Boy, you talk about having an effect in a home. And so I tell you, when you show favoritism, just remember Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and his family, and realize the impact in that home. Number three, how else can you... Uh, Do not that if you do, it will provoke your child to anger. Number three, setting unrealistic achievement goals. Just set unrealistic goals for your kids. By the way, goals they never can meet. Never can meet. Just put them under too much pressure to excel in school. In some particular sport. You know, you've heard of this story. The kid comes home and he's got... You know, four A's on the report card and one C. Guess where dad and mom focus? The C. Forget about the four A's. Must have been study hall A's, you know, I don't know. But they focus, I mean, and the child just feels like frustrated. I can't, I can't uh, gain their approval for anything. And uh, maybe it's some particular sport. And probably this is where dad wanted to play the sport and could never could. So he's hoping his kid can, you know. Or it's music. Whatever it is that they do, children get frustrated when they feel that there's no way they can make dad or mom happy, no matter how hard they try. And dad, or perhaps mom, 
just isn't satisfied. The bar is set so high, higher and higher, and there's no sensitivity to a child's abilities or skill levels. This will result in anger and bitterness. Number four, allowing your child to be overindulgent. Allowing your child to be overindulgent. Let me read again that quote from Susanna Wesley at this point. She said, The parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the saving of the soul. The parent who indulges self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him to drown his child, soul, and body forever. So if you want to frustrate and anger your child, just give him, her, everything they want. Be sure to pick up after them. You know, make sure you go in the room and pick up. Make sure you go in the bathroom and pick up everything. And when it comes time, or, or and, and allow them also to shift all responsibility and accountability for their behavior onto somebody else. It's his fault. It's her fault. And when it comes time for them to face the world on their own, you're going to find they'll find people don't serve them or allow them to deflect responsibility for some misdeeds, and they're going to become very angry at those people. Number five, a little bit of overlapping, discouragement. Discouragement. You know how to discourage your child? Just lack understanding on your part. Don't choose to reward your child. In both cases, they'll destroy your child's motivation and incentive. Listen to them and show them acceptance. Reward them graciously with love. Give them approval and honor when they deserve it. Don't respond to them in ways that are going to cause them to feel defeated and discouraged. And by the way, in this world, they're going to get enough of that. You know you've been out there long enough to know that. How important then to be, by the way, the home ought to be the place that's, that's a safe haven. It ought to be a place where the child knows I am loved and accepted unconditionally. Number six, failing to make sacrifices for your child. What do I mean by that? Look, you're bothered to me. I don't have time for you. I've got my own thing I want to do. Go do something else. Drop them off somewhere else so you can get rid of them so you can do your own thing all the time. and They'll get the message. And they'll realize you're not going to sacrifice. Let them know rather that you uh, love them and you want them around. You're interested in what they're doing and so forth. And they'll talk to you and you can respond as they share their heart with you. So when you become uncaring and unavailable, unavailable in these ways, your child will grow resentful toward you. Number seven, failing to allow your child to grow up. What do I mean by that? They're going to not do everything right. They're not even going to do it good at times. You set the table that way. You know, you give them chores and they mess up. Well, laugh with them. Help them along the way. Realize that they're not perfect yet like you are. Okay. (laughs) Expect progress, not perfection. Just don't jump all over them. By the way, there are dads that do that. I mean, they are so quick to jump all over their kids, yell at them, maybe make fun of them. Number eight, neglect. I've often wondered, Bob, as we've been in 1 Samuel, was this the problem with Samuel's two boys? Samuel was gone so much that he neglected them. 
It certainly was the case with King David. And it was not that King David did not love Absalom. The Bible tells you very clearly he loved him. But boy, that son felt neglect. Absalom grew up with contempt for his father and other members of the family. And as a father, you need to make sure your children are constantly aware of your love for them. Clearly verbalize your love and demonstrate it through time spent with them and showing interest in the things that they're doing. But there's a prime example of one that was neglected. And believe me, he took it out on his dad and as well as out on his family. And number nine, probably you could fill this in yourself. Abusive words. Abusive words. They have a profound negative impact upon a child. Listen to this verb verse out of Proverbs. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. I mean, it's so picturesque. This guy's got a sword and he's just whacking everything. You know, it's jabbing, whacking. There's one who speaks rashly. Notice it's coming out of his mouth. Speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. You see, with mere words, you can cut your child's heart to shreds. Just mere words. You can hurt and crush your child's feelings, and they come away feeling rejected. And over time, they'll become bitter, angry, and rebel. By the way, you can do this speaking out of anger, out of sarcasm, out of ridicule. Three ways that you can do that to a child. And number 10, believe me, these are not all of them, but number 10, physical abuse. Physical abuse. There's been many a dad, many a mom who's gone beyond reasonable, appropriate measures to discipline their child and has ended up harming them. As one man put it, this is the worst form of bullying and brutality because parents should be the ones most devoted to the child's love and protection. Such physical abuse not only does physical injury to the child, it also does lasting harm to the child's spirit. Such a child will grow up with a vengeful spirit toward his parents and will unleash a similar brutality upon others as they grow older. How true that is. Listen, ask the Lord for a calm mind and a loving heart as you're dealing with the disciplinary issues in your home, as you have to rebuke your children and so forth, but do it out of genuine compassion and concern for the child's well-being. Dear one, if you violate this first part of God's key, now listen carefully, if you violate this first part of God's key that he places in your hands, regardless of how you do so, You will provoke your child to exasperation. You will drive that child away. It will build destructive attitudes of resentment in their heart. And ultimately, you will destroy both the child and your family. And you'll never get to the first base on the second part. You see why that's so important? I mean, we're quick to pick up that second part. We're going to instruct them and discipline them. But if you violate the first part, you've lost the cause. You'll never be able to turn that key and win that child for the Lord. Number four. And by the way, there are many a son, many a daughter who was raised by Christian parents who is not walking with God today. And one of the major reasons is because dad didn't do the first part as he should have. Number four, your God-given key unlocks your child's heart. Isn't that beautiful? This God-given key unlocks your child's heart. 
Let me read it again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the positive part here. Number A under that, God tells you, Dad, that your child needs your personal help. It says you have to bring them up. What's that telling you? They need your help here. Children's upbringing, God places squarely, squarely in the laps of dads. I know moms are very, very involved with this, but no sis first. It places it squarely in the lap of dad. He hands the father the key to that child's heart, if you please. Why? Because God has placed you, dad, as head of your house. You're the one who must give an account for the oversight of your family. Number B, God tells you, Dad, to watch over your child's heart. Watch over that heart. And grandpas, because some of you have already raised your kids. Okay, grandpas, watch over your grandchildren's hearts. Proverb 4.23 says, watch over the heart with all diligence. Boy, that means put effort into it, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, I realize that's written personally to the each individual, but certainly applies here to this Ephesians 6, 4 as well, and dads. It's never enough, listen, it's never enough simply to deal with your child's behavior and get them to behave properly on the outside. You must address the condition of what's going on where? In the heart. You've got to address what's going on in the heart. When you punish your child for their external offenses, be sure you help them see that the root issue is their heart. Let them know they have offended not just you, but they've also offended God. Help them to see that. Number C, you, Dad, are to discipline your child. What does that mean? Get the rod out, right? Get the willow switches out. No, this word discipline chosen by Paul here in Ephesians 6, 4, means to rebuke. To warn, this as used here conveys the idea of gentle, loving, parental admonishment. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just over a few pages there. Paul will explain the use of this word discipline. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There he says to the Thessalonian believers, that church there, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's an explanation of the second part of Ephesians 6, 4. Paul says that's what we're doing. That's what dads need to do with their children as well. And he couples this action with instructing your child. Again, let me read the latter part of verse 4. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now we're going to go quickly through this part. And each one is a devotional in itself. It's something you can write down and you could add to this list. By by Certainly you can. But just to take this list and think about it very briefly. You, dad, are to instruct your child. Well, let me give you some help here. Point your child to God. We talked about them seeing how you walk. And what does it say in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Boy, you're to talk about God. He's to be the center of your whole life, in your home, everything you do. Talk about God. Point your child, your grandchildren, to God. Okay? 
He is to be central. He is to be the heartbeat of your life. You're to love Him, as it says, with all your heart, body, mind, and soul, and so forth. Number two, teach your child to acknowledge God. Not just to know about God. You know, He's a Creator. He sent His Son to die on a cross. Yes, but teach them to acknowledge God. His presence. His authority. His power. You know, there's everything that's around us is to point us to God. And to acknowledge Him. And to thank Him. And we do that, by the way, in prayer and thanksgiving and so forth. Number three, teach your child to love God. Boy, that's best taught, maybe, than taught. When they see that you love God. You know, the, the, uh, th- this is a, a, a lifetime-lasting memory for me. My grandpa, and I want to say this for Roy's sake, big black King James Bible. Big, Roy. Big. Big letters, yeah. Maybe that was it. But I'll tell you what. Grandpa, and and the worst that ever came out of his mouth was when he was cutting wood, firewood, and things like that. I don't know whether he missed the the, the block of wood or what. He'd say, Taw heck. That was it. That was it. Far from today, isn't it? But I remember Grandpa, Grandpa Walker, with that great big black King James Bible sitting every evening on his lap. Every night reading that. You know, there's such a variety in Bibles now. I don't know if my grandkids ever see think I'm reading the Bible. They might think I'm reading some other book, you know. Maybe you've got to go back to that big black Bible, Roy. But that made an impact on me. We talk about teaching your children to love God. That made an impact that still will stay with me until I get home to throw my arms around Grandpa Walker because of that, what I saw every time I go to, up there to his home, that big black Bible on his lap. What a testimony. Teach your child to love God. Number four, teach your child to obey God. Certainly that's the essence of what you got in chapter 6, verse 4. Teach your child to obey God. And you're trying to have them obey Him with a, a pure heart, a genuine heart. Not, I may be, I may be uh, sitting down on the inside, but I'm standing up on the outside, you know, or the other way around. You know what I mean. Number five, teach your child to fear God. To revere Him. To worship Him. Let them see you doing that. Teach your child that. That was beautiful about the little girl praying here that you had earlier. And then number six, teach your child to listen to God and to talk to God. Teach them. How do you listen to God? you hear these strange voices? No, you listen to Him as you read the Scriptures. And share what God, how God is speaking to your heart through the Scriptures. And then how to talk with God. That's prayer, isn't it? Teach your child, and we do that very, very early, don't we? As that little girl was praying for her dad. Beautiful example of that. And then number seven, you don't have this, but you know what? I wanted to put this in because I've seen it having pastored over the years as I have. And I hope this would never happen to any one of you here this morning or anyone that normally is here in this church under my pastoral ministry or Pastor Jim's remarks. I have seen this now, having pastored for, what, 40-some years, where for whatever reason, 
Family started off good in the church. They like the church. They want to be a part of the church. And I understand sometimes God makes it, you know, there's a change there. And they say, you know, this church isn't, it's not what we need. We need to go somewhere else because they have this program. Well, I understand that. It's when they, for whatever reason, decide to quit church. And they don't go anywhere. And I watch that as I have this longer period of tenure now as pastor. And pretty soon I have these families either coming back to talk with me or it becomes very clear that their kids are no longer interested in God or spiritual things. It's, it's amazing how folks, and I, you are here listening to me and I want you to, it's amazing how some of us can be tricked by the devil to think that church is good, it's got some great things, but you know it's really optional. It's optional. What's interesting about that to me is that it wasn't my idea. It wasn't, I said, God, you have a good idea here because I need a job. That's not the case at all. No, God says church is my plan. And though imperfect, and by the way, we have room for a lot of hypocrites because that's what we all are. And we come here and you've heard that before. You know, okay, we're trying to grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens is the devil will get in there and allow something to happen. Somebody will say something. Somebody will do or not do something. And they'll say, that's it. I've had it. I'm out of it. I'm gone. And the sad part is they may choose, and the devil likes us, not to go anywhere. I want you to understand the impact a Bible teaching, preaching, praying, faithful church has on families. Because it's powerful. I've had the joy of working with Mark and Kathy here for, what, 17 years? Something like that. And uh, to see... These little kids, as I said, some weren't even born when I came, and then they're born, and because dad and mom were faithful, they were raised in the church, and they went to Sunday school, and I, I, it's not just Mark and Kathy, because many of you have been faithful at teaching Sunday school uh, right along, and you've been involved with Awana as well, and, uh, and the, the youth ministry and so forth, and I've watched these kids, and no, you can't win with everyone, I understand that, but I've seen one after another have a heart for God. Man, that's... You can't, what, what a joy. I have no greater joy than this to see my children walking in the truth. And they have a heart for God. And they choose to go out and maybe go on to a Bible college. Maybe it's a secular college. But they want to be faithful in that college to their walk with the Lord. And God directs in their life. And they, they even when choosing a mate, they want somebody who loves the Lord, loves His Word. Not that that's a 100% guarantee. And please understand, I understand that. There have been people that have been so faithful and still their kids chose not to walk with God. So you can't always win. But I'll tell you this, the greater percentage does win. And so I just want to say this. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. And I've now been at it long enough that I have seen these families drift away and then their children no longer have any interest. And then they come back. My kids are on drugs. They're all messed up. Uh, They're just, you know... You can go on and on. You can fill that in yourself. And so I just want to say how important this plan of God is. That's why you have the scriptures. And that's why it says in Ephesians 6, 4, Dad, I put in your hands. I put in your hands the key. The key for getting your children and grandchildren 
to follow the Lord. May He bless you. May He bless this church. May I have the joy of seeing my grandkids and my great-grandkids. All right, and my great-great-grandkids. Won't happen. May I hear about it, that they're walking with God. I have no greater joy than this. Remember, dear ones, there's two parts to that verse, chapter 6, verse 4. You foul up on the first part and think that somehow the second part will work. Oh, how wrong you will be. Do both. And may God bless you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for a day set aside by our nation called Father's Day. Lord, it's my privilege to pray for this flock, this believers here. Dads in particular and grandpas. Lord, you have blessed us so wonderfully. I know at least I I am so blessed with my three boys, my two daughters-in-law, my six grandchildren, my wife. I'm so blessed. And then may I add, Lord, as I often do, I'm so blessed with this body of believers here. I love them. It's great to be a part of this family here. And Lord, my desire, you know my heart, I want them to be able to say, there's no greater joy to us than having our children, our grandchildren, those that we have brought up in Sunday school and in the youth ministry in Iwana, in church, no greater joy than to see them walking in the truth. Lord, it's hard today. In fact, I just stagger about how much harder it is today with kids that their eyes and ears are consumed with electronic gadgets And, uh, Lord, anything and everything is available to them at an instant touch. And the things that they have to fight with, I mean, the temptation is horrendous. And the peer pressure is so hard. Oh, God, we need homes where dads do not provoke their children to anger, but rather they bring them up continually day by day in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Thank you for putting that key in our hands. May we turn it. And may our families rejoice. May the body of Christ rejoice in the victorious walk that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. I think a good closing song that we're going to sing is about that. Sing them over again to me, those wonderful words of life. That's what we do in the home. Would you stand and join me in this song? Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Christ the Blessed One gives to all wonderful words of life. Sinnerless to the loving call, wonderful words of life. Words of really given, wooing us to heaven. Beautiful words, wonderful words. 
wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Sweetly echo the gospel call, wonderful words of life. Offer pardon and peace to all, wonderful words of life. Jesus, only Savior, sanctify forever. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Heavenly Father, you have said we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through those beautiful, wonderful words of life. May your blessing abide upon each one who is here this morning. Abide, Lord, we pray, in a powerful way upon each family. And would you abide again in a powerful way upon this church. Father, for those that are struggling, who long to have their children walk with you, would you hear their hearts cry? Would you fill them with prayer, with a humility, with a genuineness, Lord, that you can use to reach out to their children or their grandchildren. Oh, Father, we long to hear the good news that many have turned back to you and know the joy of salvation. We pray that, Lord, may we just bear one another's burdens. In your name we pray. Amen.